Welcome everybody to Common Sense Christianity. As always, I'm your host, Ethan Foster, here today with another episode. And today we are starting our new Mormonism unit, Is Mormonism True? I know I've talked about it three or four times on this podcast, but we are going to really start going into deep, uh, into depth, I should say, about uh, the beliefs of Mormonism and why I personally think it is not true. Now, I do live in South Jordan, Utah, so many people, uh, many of my friends, I should say, will not be very pleased with this, but I still think it is my job, especially uh, to reach uh, my audience with uh, the evidence for Mormonism. And I know I haven't been that nice about it in the in the past, so I am going to attempt to be very objective with this, as I have tried to do with when it comes to atheism and things like that. So uh, let's go ahead and start with our first point, and that is recent DNA research has proved that the Native Americans, aka and Lamanites, are not from Israel, as Joseph Smith revealed. They are originally from Siberia and Mongolia, much longer than a mere 2,600 years ago. Furthermore, no DNA evidence supports or even hints that the Book of Mormon account of North American history is even remotely accurate. And again, I have made this point several times in in our uh, previous Mormonism episodes, that if the Book of Mormon was true, there were have to be some sort of genetic evidence connecting the two. Now, if you're a Mormon listening to this, contact me at commonsensechristianitypodcast at gmail.com and explain to me why this does not flat out disprove the Book of Mormon, first of all. that I think that one point alone uh, discredits the entire book because there should be some type of genetic evidence. There should be some sort of genes. There should be at least... One Native American with uh, the genes of that. And not only that, uh, the the Book of Mormon claims that these people were white. And I'm not going to get too into depth of this, but uh, most Native Americans, to my knowledge, are not white. Now, yes, you can claim microevolution in a sense that they got darker um, over time from the Book of Mormon days, but that... That's just another excuse. You, you cannot ignore the genetic information that DNA provides. Uh, point number two. Mormon archaeologists from BYU and elsewhere are quoted as saying that there is no validity uh, uh, to the topography slash geography of the Book of Mormon and no evidence of the existence of Nephites, Lamanites, or any other group mentioned in the Book of Mormon. There are more than a dozen items and species mentioned in the Book of Mormon that have neither exist, never existed in the New World, such as coins, glass, Egyptian hieroglyphics, metal swords, functional wheels, chains, carriages, brass armor, chariots, wheat, figs, olives, grapes, barley, uh, sheep, oxen, goats, uh, asses, horses, bulls, elephants. And I haven't read the Book of Mormon yet. I just got done... Uh, reading the Bible, so I am considering reading the Book of Mormon. I've read bits and pieces of it. But honestly, if you want my opinion on it, uh, the second you read it, you can clearly see, if you are not LDS, that it was made up. And this is one of the things I, I talk about. Joseph Smith did not have a very good understanding about uh, the New World's history. I I would make the argument that he wasn't aware of many of the, uh, I guess you can say, natural parts of the ecosystem 
back before uh, Europeans got here. So he would use um, what he knew to be normal in the new world and put them into the book. I, I believe his ignorance is what leads to his demise on here. Uh, because obviously there's none of these animals over here. But it's just in his imagination because that's probably what he was used to seeing. At least a lot of these animals that are stated. Uh, continuing on. Most of the BYU archaeologists and LDS archaeologists working elsewhere that I know are believers in the Book of Mormon. I know only two of them who have taken exception with the Book of Mormon account. But the other author here confuses me. Where does he find words like coins, glass, hieroglyphics, metal swords, and other old, uh, other than the old world sword of Lebanon, uh, wheels, and some others in the Book of Mormon? They're simply not there. While he's thinking about that, let's note that swords of various types, but not metal, are known in the, from ancient America. Chains are, are depicted on... Uh, state, you know what, let's just not even read this. So clearly, uh, the person that writes the objection to this uh, is is Mormon. So I'm reading the points from this uh, article. And one part shows the points why the Book of Mormon isn't true, and the other part answers in and says it is true. Now, when, listen, when researching Mormonism, I've ran into these points, and... What I hear, uh, don't quote me on this, but what I hear is that there are words meaning uh, those descriptions, coins, uh, chariots, wheat, etc., swords. Um, so, again, you are ignoring the simple points at hand here of there is no archaeological evidence for it. And here is one of my favorite points, uh, point number three. The Book of Mormon revealed by Joseph Smith from a random set of Egyptian papyri before the world even know how to translate hieroglyphics has been declared a bogus interpretation by Egyptologists around the world. No group or body of scholars even pretends that Joseph Smith's translations are partly accurate. And then the response here is, these assessments have all been based on misinformation provided to those Egyptologists by critics of the church. Moreover, since we don't have the papyrus from which Joseph Smith did the translation, how could they know? The prophet claimed that it came from a long stroll that he showed uh, to visitors in Navajo after uh, 1840, and not that it came from the smaller fragments that were mentioned on paper in Kirkland in 1835. The writer is simply not up on the latest research on the subject. Well, the person that is writing this is clearly uh, not aware of the issues or he is simply ignoring it. it, it this has been proven. It, it, you can't argue against this. Now, it is true. We do not have the whole Book of Abraham supposed manuscript. But the parts that we do have signify that it's an Egyptian funeral text. And from those fragments, why should we assume that the rest of it is true and that Joseph Smith actually copied it downright. Uh, that just makes no sense. That, again, takes a greater leap of faith than what I'm willing to take. The best assumption is that it was forged and that Joseph Smith didn't know how to read 
Egyptian hieroglyphics like most people didn't know back then, and that he simply made it up or thought that he was translating it correctly, but actually he wasn't. Uh, point number four. Joseph Smith claimed on two occasions that I've run several miles while in possession of golden plates. By his own linear mes measurements, these plates would have weighed at least 145 pounds, assuming that they're at least half gold. Joseph Smith failed to provide an estimate of their weight, which would have been outstanding or a remarkable feature of gold plates. And the person writes, this estimate is incorrect. It is based on the assumption that one of the descriptions of the size of the collection of plates is solid gold. But these were not one solid bullion block. Rather, they were individual sheets bound together, which would mean that they were not solid, plus one must take into account that they were, that they were engraved, meaning that there were air pockets between the various plates. Nowhere does Joseph Smith say that these plates were of pure gold, which is assumed in the calculation noted above. This has been dealt with, with elsewhere. And he lists a bunch of links, which I am not going to waste my time looking at that. Now, again, even if that was correct, which reading Joseph Smith's testimony, I highly doubt. Uh, there's still those other issues that you have to deal with. And, uh, I mean, Mormons can get you on one or two decent points when it comes to whether their church is true, when it comes to whether the Bible supports uh, their really illogical religious beliefs. Uh, you still have to deal with all these objections, all these issues that they have no way of even uh, starting to deal with. And then point number five, my final point, Joseph Smith lied to his first wife, Emma, and his neighbors and community about his deep uh, involvement in polygamy. He stood at pulpits and denounced the practice while secretly married to a dozen teenagers. He caused a printing press to be destroyed after it advertised an upcoming issue concerning Smith's involvement in polygamy. This was considered an act of treason in the young United States Smith fled Navajo, Illinois, after destroying this printing press, hiding out in a nearby jail where a state militia unit found him and killed him after a gun battle. And see, Mormons like to claim that he was martyred, um, but just by reading this, you can tell that that uh, was simply not true. He committed a crime, a very serious crime, in fact, and he was punished by it, and he resisted, and I believe um, he killed two people in that incident. I may be wrong on that, uh, but I do believe he killed some people during that incident. And I'll just read a little bit of the of this uh, LDS member's response because I don't feel like reading all that. Emma was well aware of the polygamy issue, though most members of the church may not have been. I'd like to see a reference to discourses delivered at pulpits by the prophet denouncing the practice. I know that on one occasion he denied imprint that the church was practicing it and that uh, that was perfectly true since the principle had not yet been treason in the young United States. Uh, Joseph was arrested on charges of having ordered the destruction of the press used to print the Navajo ex expositor. But the charge was afterward changed 
to treason with no explanation. He would have never been found guilty of treason since he did not commit any treasonous acts. Okay, we'll just go ahead and stop there. Uh, while that is true, and I'm quickly looking over here, I do not see any response dealing with the polygamy issue because that's the main issue brought up by this. He did lie to his first wife, Emma, and still, even if he didn't, why does that justify being married to teenagers? I do not get why the LDS church is so strict on sexual sin when their own prophet broke all these laws. Polygamy is truly disgusting. And sometimes I hear uh, Mormons, when I have these conversations with them, they'll point to people like Solomon, David, uh, various prophets in the Bible. For First off, it was never condoned by the LDS, uh, by, uh, by the Bible. It was never uh, supported. Second of all, God routinely discourages it. You can, see, you can see what he did with Solomon. Although Solomon uh, is not the best example of it because he had over 700 wives and 300 concubines, I believe, which is pushing it a little. But again, it was never a doctrine of the Jewish church or the Christian church. It was a doctrine of the LDS church. And then they turn around and deny it. And contradict each other, which I will talk about Mormon text uh, contradictions in a different uh, LDS episode. But with that, I'm going to go and go over a few quick things I want to tell you guys. First of all, if you haven't already, check out the website. I will put in the link in the description of this podcast episode. Uh, second of all, we have an Instagram account, uh, Common Sense Christianity, same name, easy to find, same uh, logo, and. And also, if you haven't, oh, I just I already said the website. Uh, we are going to start working on a YouTube channel. Hopefully, we can get that up uh, soon. And we're going to start putting videos on Instagram eventually. Uh, and make sure, please, guys, I want you guys to email me with questions. I want questions about the topics I talk about that help challenge my mind. I still haven't gotten uh, any questions from you guys. Uh, so, please. Uh, contact me at commonsensechristianitypodcast at gmail.com and I will greatly appreciate it. And for, with that, I'm done with those five points. I'm going to continue the episode. So I've read this book about three or four times. It's the only book I have about Mormonism and it's a truly fantastic read. It's called Have You Witnessed a Mormon Lately by James R. Spencer. And he is also the author of Beyond Mormonism, which I haven't had the privilege of reading yet. But if you want to witness to your Mormon brothers and sisters with accuracy, knowing their beliefs, and do it in the most effective way, check out this book. It was published in 1986, I believe. Uh, so it's a little bit older, but it's just a truly fantastic book. And I'm going to read uh, a little bit of it. And it, what he talks about, what Jim Spencer talks about here, is uh, how how Mormons routinely uh, discredit the Bible, say that it is inaccurate, it has been changed. And I am just going to read a bit of the points that he makes. So, step one, overview of textual criticism. I usually open with something like this. Throughout history, before the invention of the printing press, hand-copied books of the New Testament were carried throughout the old world. Today, scientists have access to thousands of these ancient manuscript fragments, which are found in various parts of the world, Africa, Asia, and Europe. These documents were copied at various time periods, 
subcultures from the 8th century, some as early as the 2nd century. A critic will assemble all the fragments of the particular portion of the New Testament and compare them to see if they agree or disagree. Step 2, the chart. Then I draw a chart. Reproduce here as chart C on page 107. I cannot show you that because this is a podcast. This is a diagram of how copies of ancient documents come into our possession. For example, let's take the book of Colossians. Chapter 4, verse uh, 16 says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of of Laodiceans. Colossians and Laodicea were two towns in what is now Turkey. Paul suggests that copies of his letters uh, be passed around through the churches. As time passed, more and more copies were made. The textual critic compares hundreds of fragments of the book of Colossians. If the copies vary widely, the textual critic will be uncertain about what the original text said. But if the copies are in strict agreement, the textual critic knows with a high degree of confidence what the original said. Then I stop talking and look at the Latter-day Saint. I am ready for step three. Step three, the opinion of textual critics. If the system is working, my Mormon friend will ask what the textual critics say about the Bible. When he asks that, reply, well, textual critics, whether they're Christian, Jew, Muslim, or agnostic, are in absolute agreement. They say that the text of the Bible is certain. One leading critic, Sir Frederick Kenyon, has said, it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. And now even the Mormon church is forced to agree. Dr. Richard Anderson, a BYU professor, says Kenyon is right that all the ancient manuscripts agree in 99% of the time. Uh, and uh, that there are no serious problems with the Bible. So now we know with amazing accuracy that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Colossae and Rome uh, and Philippi. Now you have to decide if Paul was inspired or if he wrote the Word of God. That is a question of faith, but there is no doubt about what he said. We know that he wrote 2,000 years ago to the church at Rome and Corinth and Philippi. And see, this is a very good point that can be used for Christians and for atheists because it brings up, well, it smashes down a lot of the objections that both of these two groups have. So it shows that the original copies, what was originally written, uh, is still preserved today. That does not mean that it's true and that it was inspired by God, but it does mean that we can find the original manuscripts, well, since we don't have the original manuscripts, I should say, we can uh, find uh, out what they said with almost 100% certainty. And that, that is a very important point. And I encourage anyone that is uh, talking with uh, Christians then to uh, research that more. And that... Well, talking with Christians, talking with Mormons, I should say. I'm a little distracted here. I'm bringing up some stuff on YouTube that I'm going to read to you really quick. But anyone that is uh, struggling with Mormonism, just research it. Read the books. Read uh, I Was a Born Again Mormon by Sean McCranny, which I'm going to get uh, very soon. Uh, 
Or you can read uh, I Have You Witnessed a Mormon Lately by James R. Spencer. Very good book. There are all these excellent resources out there. Or Jeff Durbin, James White. I know they can be a little mean sometimes, but they are very good people to listen to when dealing with the theological and historical evidences for and against the Book of Mormon. And they will help you understand these issues. I encourage my Mormon friends that you need to research outside of what your church tells you because the church will only tell you what you what they want you to hear. Same thing with Baptists, same thing with uh, any other Christian denomination, same thing with Mormons. You have to research outside of your comfort zone, outside of your beliefs, so that you can best figure out the truth. So, really quickly here, I've been getting into debates on YouTube even more now. I find it a lot of fun. And this time I did it with a creation. So, Biblical Creation and Apologetic Ministries uh, had a video of James White saying that evolution isn't true and stuff. And I responded to the YouTube comments that they uh, made. And he said, Gen Genesis is using common language found in older, older myths. Uh, one of the earlier people uh, commented. And then they respond, oh, please match up with exact verses in Genesis 1 through 11 via their specific context and parts of speech. And the original Paleo-Hebrew to which a specific or older creation myth of which scientific uh, specific culture and language. I won't hold my breath. And I respond, there's so much proof for evolution in the Bible, so which one do you choose? And he responds, it doesn't matter which translation of the Bible we use when we read in the original text. We see that the narratives and things don't change, just a few translation errors per language. Evidence for macroevolution, when and where has one kind of complex organism turned into another kind of complex or organism via information scrambling mutations and mindless natural selection that is powerless to create any new and viable genetic information. Now, I don't know why he says mindless because I literally just said there, there is, uh, eh, there, there's evidence for the Bible and evolution. So I, my response is a little bit inaccurate, but I was typing really quickly. Uh, just trying to get this over with. I will point to DNA evidence. DNA shows a common ancestry. Why would I assume that all organisms aren't related, even though our DNA is like 95% the same? Also, I don't think natural selection in a way... Also, I think natural selection in a way is God-guided because it wouldn't make any sense if there was no creator behind the natural order of the universe. And then he takes the little miss... Um, Saying that, I said, DNA is not precisely 95% of the same in all organisms. Is that what you were trying to say? Because if it is, you show an extreme lack of knowledge of basic biology and genetics, which I'm not uh, showing that. I was saying that as an example, but I, I admit I should have specified more. What, are you, what you were probably trying to say rather unclearly is the alleged 95% genetic similarity between chimpanzees and humans. Is that what you wanted to say? No, that is not what I wanted to say. I just found a common number that displayed us with our mammalian uh, brothers and sisters. Because DNA uh, shared between um, chimpanzees and humans is around 97-98% the same. 
In either case, that's not quite right, he says. DNA similarity isn't evidence of common ancestry, but is better explained by common design. Genetic similarity is only based on those areas of our genome that call for proteins. In humans, that is approximately 2% of our 3 billion base pairs. So that 95% or so percent of similarity between humans and chimps is based on very flimsy emphysemal silver of both the human and chimpanzee genome sizes, respectively. Also, that doesn't explain the origin of DNA in any organism, let alone in humans or apes, in the first place. DNA is a complex macromolecule that holds genetic information and does a myriad of other things that are necessary to maintain body structure and metabolism. You can't, through any hypothetical evolutionary mechanisms, explain the origin of such complex organic macromolecules, including RNA and the thousands of complex proteins that inhabit uh, our bodies. They cannot be explained by a naturalistic evolutionary process whatsoever. And notice how he dodges it almost, pretty much, Uh, by saying that it doesn't explain the beginnings of it. Evolution is not at all the beginnings of life. Atheists try and claim it, but that's not what it is. It is the change of life. It's how life evolves over time and adapts. It is not the beginning of life, but the process of life. Once you have life, then you can have evolution. Uh, And my response is, okay, that's my bad. I should explain what I meant better. My mom gives me this common design argument all the time, and it's not really convincing. I think it would be almost God tricking us. But let's start here. I'm guessing you believe in microevolution. So why, given enough time, can macroevolution take place? So I'm wondering, I also am wondering still uh, about the fossil record and the creatures, at, and just to put it simply, the organization in the fossil record. And we'll, I'll talk about that in a bit, but we're about done. He hasn't responded to me yet. I'm waiting. Uh, but yeah, so... He dodged many of my questions. He talks about the problems with evolution instead of answering my objections to creationism. And that was the main problem that I was trying to get him to realize. And hopefully he answers my questions. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Common Sense Christianity. I know this has been a really long episode, but I appreciate it, guys. Please, please, guys, we want to expand our audience. We want to reach more people with the ministry. We have an Instagram account now. I told you, check that out uh, earlier. We have the podcast, which is our main attraction. We're going to start writing more articles once we get time on the website. And if you want to write an article for us, not for pay, but just to write your opinion on things, uh, whether you're an atheist, Christian, Mormon, whatever, uh, just email us at commonsensechristianpodcast at gmail.com, and we will be more than happy to put it on the website. Also, make sure you uh, contact us with any questions if you have. And that is it for me today. Uh, I am Ethan Foster, here with Common Sense Christianity. You just listened to an episode of Common Sense Christianity. I'm your host, Ethan Foster, as always, and we love doing this for you guys. Please share the podcast with your friends and family if you like it, and frankly, even if you don't, uh, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review so that more people can hear the Word of God. And until next time, God bless you.